Well, I am not Penny. Um, I'm certainly not as stylish as he is or as well-dressed. Although I did learn how to double, um, do a double Windsor this morning, so I do feel a little better. I know, I forgot. Um, well, over the last three weeks, Penny has been preaching through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And to briefly review what we've covered, Paul begins his letter by reminding those in Ephesus of the magnificent blessings that they possess, blessings that they've received in Christ through the Father's sovereign plan of salvation. Verses 3 through 14 highlight that um, we've been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We've been chosen by God before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless, predestined for adoption as sons, received redemption and forgiveness of sin through Christ's blood. We've been made aware of the mystery of God's will and purpose, obtained an inheritance and sealed with the Holy Spirit. And it's with these blessings in mind that we will turn to our passage today, which is from Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. I'm going to go ahead and pray first before we get started. Heavenly Father God, we thank you that you welcome us into your presence, that you would call a group of sinners who are still struggling into your presence, that you would bring us into your body. We thank you for your word this morning. We pray that you would bless the reading of your word, that you would be with me, that you would help me to speak your truth rooted in the scriptures. And God, we pray that you would sanctify us by your truth, for your word is truth. In Christ's name, amen. If you all could turn to Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, uh, if you have your order of worship, it is in there as well. This is God's word. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Thanks be to God for his word this morning. Well, I have an illustration to start off with, and you guys may get a little nervous when you hear it, but be, be confident that we'll, we'll all be okay. Um. There may be a few of you here, maybe very few, that know that there's an increasing great white shark population in the Cape Cod area. Okay. I, I love sharks, so I, I'm, an, I'm a nerd like that, so I'm very interested in these things. 
Experts estimate that as many as 300 great whites are now swimming in the Cape Cod area, which is a very popular destination for beachgoers. People travel there. Let's imagine next August, you decide you wanna go visit the Cape Cod area. And as you get there, um, you, you are uh, checking in your hotel, and you pick up a newspaper, and the newspaper headlines that there have been nine great white shark sightings from the beach in the last two days. You say, okay, that's common, whatever. Um, you go and change in your hotel room, and you decide you're going to hit up a surf shop before you go to the beach. And when you go to the surf shop, you realize that everything in there is shark-themed, everything. And you look up, and there's a TV on, and the news is talking about um, there's lots more great white sharks in the area this week um, because the seal population is, is growing. But you're not going to let a few sharks get in the way of you having fun on your beach trip. So you head to the beach. As you get to the beach, um, everyone says, hey, you got here at the perfect time. They just reopened the beach. It's been closed all day because of sharks. And you say, awesome, I'm going to go surfing. And you get your surfboard and you paddle out about 50 yards from shore. And as you get there, something really huge bumps you off your board. Frantically, you climb back on your board to see an 18-foot great white swimming below the surface. Okay, I'm getting nervous just telling this. Okay, so fortunately, you gather yourself and you have a big wave and you catch it and you ride it in to safety. Okay. So, let me ask you a question. If you did that, were you living in light of the facts and being wise in what was true about the situation? No. <laughs> no, you ignored the warnings in the newspaper and on the TV. The shark-themed um, surf shop should have given something away. And the fact that the beach had been closed all day. You didn't act in accordance to the truth. And you went your own way, and you acted like that reality was hidden from you. And as Christians, we often struggle to live our lives in light of what is true. Many of us here, we know the truth of our calling. We know our salvation. We know our justification. We know the hope that we have in Christ we know that we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. But sometimes it's very difficult for us to live in the day-to-day -day in light of those truths. Others here may struggle to focus on your heavenly citizenship because you're caught up too much in temporary fulfillment. We all need to have an eternal perspective. And in today's passage, Paul wants everyone in Ephesus, and by extension, us as believers, to live in light of what is true. He wants us to look towards the eternal. We live in this in-between time where we have received all the blessings that I described in verse 3 through 14, but we still await our final hope, our final inheritance, which Penny talked about last week. But God has not left us alone during this time. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead, ascended him to heaven, and sat him on the throne at the right hand of the Father so he can rule and reign, lives within us. 
And since we have the promised Holy Spirit living in us, we are able to know God and to grow in grace in this lifetime. And in verses 15 through 23, Paul recites a specific prayer that the Ephesians would grow in grace. In fact, the entire passage is one sentence in the original Greek, much like verses 3 through 14 were one sentence. When I was reading that, you may have noticed it, there's not a lot of periods there. Um, but the first half of Paul's prayer is centered on sanctification, his hope for the saints to grow in grace. And the second half focuses on the foundation of his prayer. By the way, that's the school um, alarm for classes to change. So if it goes off anymore, that might be my sign to be done. <laughs> but we want to look at these two things. Paul's prayer for sanctification, and then we want to look at his foundation. The foundation for his hope, for his prayer. And in our passage, Paul connects it with the previous one by saying, for this reason. His point is that although believers possess all of the blessings listed in verses 3 through 14, we still need prayer for growth and encouragement. We need to better comprehend the tremendous themes mentioned in the previous passage. And Paul's verse, excuse me, Paul's prayer in verse 17 is Trinitarian, which is very similar to the preceding passage about God's electing love. We have here in verse 17, he mentions the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom. And I understand some of your, your um, scripture translations may say a spirit of wisdom. And I think that the NIV and the updated ESV rightly says the spirit of wisdom. And, you know, the Father has predestined us. He's blessed us through his Son, and he's opened our eyes by the work of the Spirit. It fits with the overall theme of what we'll be looking at today. Paul's point in his prayer, this whole passage, is that the Ephesians would better grasp God's immeasurable power available to them the operation of the Holy Spirit. So his prayer is Trinitarian. But after his Trinitarian introduction, we come to the content of Paul's prayer for sanctification. He first prays that the Ephesians would have wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. Well, clearly the Ephesians would have some knowledge about God because we know from Acts that Paul spent two years in Ephesus. So that's not what Paul is talking about. He's saying there's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Some people may know a lot about the Bible, and other people may know a lot about God, but that doesn't necessarily mean you know God. For example, right now, in the UK, there's a lot of refugees from the Middle East that are entering in, and they're trying to get asylum. Christian refugees face the greatest risk of persecution if they don't get asylum because they're going to be sent back to their Middle Eastern nations and could be put to death for converting to Christianity. And there are asylum assessors that interview these people to decide whether or not they're going to 
have um, their refuge in the United Kingdom. And some of them have gone a little rogue. Some of them are asking questions of people who are professing Christians to try to see if they're really genuine. So they've asked them questions like, hey, tell me the Ten Commandments, or what color is the Bible, or what year did Pentecost start? I think we were honest, a lot of us probably couldn't answer those questions, especially under intense pressure. And some refugees have been unable to answer the questions, and they fear that they're going to not have asylum and be sent back to their countries. And um, fortunately, there are groups that have come in and are crying wolf and saying, you can't do that, because knowledge in itself does not guarantee that you know and trust and follow God. People can memorize all the facts about Scripture, but it doesn't mean that they truly have a heart that is regenerate. So what does it mean to know God? J.I. Packer lays out three elements in his book, Knowing God. First, he says, knowing God is a matter of personal dealing. It's a matter of dealing with God as he opens up to you through his word by the Spirit and being dealt with him as he takes knowledge of you. Second, knowing God is a matter of personal involvement in mind, will, and feeling. Believers rejoice when we see God honored and vindicated and feel distressed when they see God mocked and dishonored. And third, G.I. Packer says that knowing God is a matter of grace. It's a relationship, and when the initiative throughout is with God. And his point is that we need to seek to know God intimately through his truths, his attributes, and his character as we are fully known by him. And you know, essential to knowing God is Paul's next request for believers. He wants us to know the hope to which we have been called. And as Christians, our worth is not determined by our background or what we've accomplished. It's determined by where we are going. Right? We're bound for the promised land, as we just sung. And knowing this should give us confidence and assurance that we really are God's children and that his hand is upon us. He leads us to a certain and blessed destiny. And on that last day, we will be like him in body and character, and we will enjoy perfect fellowship with him alongside all of our brothers and sisters from every tribe, tongue, nation, and race. That is hope. In modern language, when we talk about hope, what we're doing is we say, well, I'm going to hope that uh, I get this job or I hope we win this game or I hope I get an A on this test. It's kind of looking at something in the future and it's not really certain. But in biblical terms, it's totally the opposite. The concept of hope indicates a situation in which our future is absolutely certain. Our salvation, our righteousness, our resurrection, our eternal life, God's glory. And R.C. Sproul details this well in this, the following quote. 
He says, hope is faith being certain and receiving the assurance of what God promises for tomorrow. Our hope is the anchor for our souls and it gives stability to our faith. When we stumble and trip today and are uncertain because of afflictions, hope kicks in. We are reminded of God's promises for tomorrow. This is the hope that we have been called to. And our next prayer is um, something that's very encouraging. Paul prays that the Ephesians would know the riches of God's inheritance. Now, oftentimes we talk about inheritance as to what we will inherit, and that is one interpretation of this, but it's most likely that Paul here is talking about that we, as the people of God, are God's inheritance. And this is significant, especially to the Gentiles that Paul was writing to, because they had never had any share in the inheritance of God. They were strangers. They were aliens, just like we were before coming to faith. Paul wants to realize the huge privilege of our place in God's plan. We are part of God's intention before the foundation of the world, and we're part of the glorious riches that belong to God. He has made us holy and blameless as his treasured possession, and he will fully and finally redeem us on the last day. Isn't it amazing that Paul would hold such high regard, that Jesus holds such high regard for a community of redeemed sinners still suffering from the effects of the fall with such extraordinary value? Paul wants us to better grasp our place in God's kingdom. We are secure. We are his people. And before we come to verse 19, which is really the turning point in our passage, I just want to point out a few observations about Paul's prayer. Paul's not discouraged by the fact that in verses 3 through 14, He's spoken that God is sovereign over every aspect of our salvation. And for some of us, it's hard to understand the purpose of praying if God is totally sovereign, right? If God has already foreordained everything that should happen, if God has already chosen a certain people for his possession, why pray? But rather than skirt the issue, Paul acknowledges that God's sovereignty actually gives him a hope that leads him into prayer and thanksgiving, which he does continually. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Cease. It's constant. It's all the time. Paul doesn't get bogged down into thinking that God makes, God's sovereignty makes our prayers futile. Rather, it establishes and secures them. And we should be confident, like Paul, to pray in faith. And, and a second observation is, wouldn't it be awesome if our prayers looked like this? What if we prayed that we would be able to know God better, not know more about him, but what if we prayed to know God better and to grasp the hope to which we've been called towards and to cling to the truth that we are God's special inheritance. 
What if we took the time to pray for our spouses and our children, our parents, our friends, and our coworkers that are professing believers? What would our prayer look like? It's not to say that our general prayers and more simple prayers are not valid because we certainly know that God loves to hear any prayer from his children. But think about praying a prayer like this for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Imagine how you would feel. Imagine how you would be encouraged if, if you knew that someone was praying these things for you. I know the Ephesians had to be immensely encouraged that Paul was praying these things for them. And as we come to the turning point in this text, we see the foundation for Paul's prayer. Paul's last request is for growth in grace so that we would know the immeasurable greatness of his power. Look at verse 19. This is the turning point in today's passage. It's centered right between Christian growth and the power of God. Paul's thought transitions from the go and do to the how you do. Not how you do, like, how are you doing, but the how. <laughs> and perhaps some of you here have been thinking, I'd really like to know God better and hold on to this hope that I've been called to and to better understand how I'm part of the people of God and his special possession. I've tried and tried again, but I just continue to fall short. And Paul would say, do not despair. The immeasurable greatness of God's strength lives in you and it empowers you to persevere in the faith. You can grow in grace and have progress in this life. You can be victorious over the sins and struggles that you deal with. And let's look at the power that Paul speaks of. The second half of verse 19 combines three Greek words which essentially mean the exact same thing. It would be like saying power, strength, might, all in a row. And the ESV translated according to the working of his great might, but the Greek is more emphatic. It's almost as if saying according to the energy of the might of his power or according to the operation of the strength of his might. And that just doesn't really ring with us in English. That's like, that's too, too many synonyms. I don't, I don't get it. But what Paul is doing is he's piling all of these synonyms up because he wants to convince us, this is the point of his prayer. He wants us to convince us that the highest of all power that exists in the entire cosmos, the highest power belongs to God. And his power on our behalf is incomparable. And it's more than able to help us to grow in grace. It's more than able to bring us final salvation. And what does Paul bring up? What's the first thing Paul brings up when he wants to talk about the mighty power of God? Of course, the resurrection, right? That's the most natural thing. But Paul could have brought up a lot of other things. He could have talked about the parting of the Red Sea or God taking Elijah to heaven on a chariot of fire or perhaps 
Jesus feeding the 5,000, but instead he highlights the resurrection. And this really informs us that the historical resurrection is absolutely essential for Christians. And there may be some of you here today who are exploring Christianity. Um, Maybe others here don't know kind of where you stand. You're just kind of checking things out. Um, maybe, Maybe you think or you've heard that the resurrection is impossible because it defies natural law. It defines science. And you would be right. It does defy natural law, and it does defy science. And that is Paul's point. Paul brought up the resurrection to describe the mighty power of God. God's power is life-giving, and it took something supernatural, something not ordinary, not bound by the law of physics and science. It took that to bring Jesus from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised, then our bodies cannot be raised on the last day. But the power of Christ's resurrection not only guarantees our bodily resurrection, the same supernatural work that raised Christ from the dead is also the same power that can take a dead sinner in their trespasses, walking in darkness. It is that same power that can make people new creations. As believers, we are new creations. Think about that. God's power, his work, raises us and grants us his power to fight the battle against our sinfulness, against Satan, and against worldliness. And this power displayed in the resurrection means that your sin of laziness and inactivity that has prevented you from studying your Bible, prevented you from spending time in prayer, has prevented you from fellowshipping with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, because of his power displayed in the resurrection, you can overcome that. It means that you can have victory over the lust that inhibits you from knowing God and keeps you from a deeper relationship with him. You've been raised to a new life through Christ's resurrection by the Spirit, and you can break free from the chains of bondage that you feel are holding you down. When Satan tempts you or makes you feel unguilty, excuse me, guilty or unworthy of approaching God, know that the Spirit of Christ dwells within you. You've been made holy. You've been made righteous. And you're welcomed into God's presence because you are united with the risen Lord. When the world bombards you with ungodly values and ethics, pray that God would transform you by the renewing of your mind so that you're not tempted to give in to worldly pursuits. We cannot overcome sin and temptation on our own, yet we try hard and harder and harder and we fail. It is only by the power of God displayed in the resurrection of Jesus that we can be victorious, and it's through these victories that we can grow in grace. Let me get a sip of water.
But as we look at verse 20 and 21, we see that God's power was not used up in the resurrection of Jesus. God also worked to seat Jesus at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and all authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And here Paul is referencing Psalm 110 and Psalm 8.6 to show that the high position that God has given Christ is one of unparalleled honor and authority. Christ has now ascended and he rules in heaven on his Father's throne. And the amazing truth here is that the awesome power of God that has placed Christ over Lord as Lord over all creation is also the power that works within us. Christ's ascension, his reign, and his rule also informs us that Christ has universal authority over all things. We can be encouraged that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. Think about that situation at work when you find out that a boss or a coworker has been saying things that are untrue about you. Think about that time where a, a close friend has um, betrayed you maybe by sharing something that you told them in confidence. You know, you're not going to be able to resolve every situation in this life, but Christ is on his throne, he's in control, and he cares for you. He can get you through it. Perhaps you continually try to put yourself in that seat of authority. You try to rule your own kingdom with your own abilities. You don't depend on the Lord who reigns and rules. You can stop trying to be Jesus. He has subdued all powers on earth and in heaven. He has authority over all things. Trust me. He can handle your problems. What about the political climate in this election season? Perhaps some of you are living in despair and you're concerned about the direction that our country is headed. You live in fear of the unknown and you constantly worry because of the unseen future. Know that God is sovereign over all things. He's working out his perfect plan as he rules from on high. He is greater and more powerful than any ruler on this earth. He is above them. Pray to have a renewed hope in your glorious future. Pray that God would give you an eternal perspective through the working of his might by his spirit. And in verses 22 and 23, we come to Paul's last example of God's strength. He describes the power of God in placing Jesus as head of the church. And although Paul has been talking about the church a lot so far, and Ephesians as a whole is really about the church, this is the first time the word church comes up. Not only is Jesus head over the church, 
He is head over all things in the created order, right? And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. However, God has a special relationship with the church. Jesus Christ is intimately connected with her. He is united to his people, and they are united to him and united to each other. And Paul will pick up on this theme towards the end of Ephesians 2. I don't want to just wrap up without covering verse 23, which to many people has been, I wouldn't say a stumbling block, but a little confusing. Maybe some of you looked at verse 23. I'll read 22 to context to get context. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And maybe you're thinking, what is this fullness? And I would be lying to you if I told you that I knew when I first started looking at this or had a clue. And evangelicals, Reformed Christians, uh, really kind of split into two camps as to what the interpretation is of this fullness. And you know, both interpretations fit within Christian thought, but they're wanting to determine, like, what is the context here? What is Paul trying to get at? And the reason that there's some, some difficulty is because the way the original Greek is translated, it can be taken in two ways. The original language, the word is to fill, fulfill, or complete, pleroma. And so the text is either saying that it's the church that fills or completes Christ, or that it is Christ who fills or completes the church. And so those that argue that the passage is saying that the church fills or completes Christ, they say it fits with the language of the head-body metaphor. Just as a human body and a head go together to complete a person, um, so the church as body is joined with Christ as the head to complement each other. Um, there's some heavy hitters that hold to this view. Um, and people who hold to it, they don't believe that Christ himself really needs the church, right? He doesn't need anything. But they believe that it fits in context with the language of the text. Now, the other view, which is um, the view that I've taken after study, um, is that they're saying that Christ himself is the one that fills the church. And this view appeals to the fact that there's nowhere else in Scripture where, Christ is, where the church is said to actually fill up Christ, but there are loads of references where Christ is said to fill up his church. And it really is consistent with the theme of God dwelling with his people. The church is God's temple, and God's glory filled the temple in Jerusalem. And today, Jesus Christ, who is the glory of God, fills the church by his spirit. And if it is the case that Paul is saying that Christ himself fills up the church, he makes it complete. Paul is reaffirming, as he has throughout this passage, that the power of God shown in Christ empowers the church. That's, that's an encouraging thing to think of, that his fullness dwells within individuals and in the church and the church corporately. 
But in wrapping up our text, it's, it's clear to see that we as Christians, we need strength for the journey. We've received countless blessings in Christ, but we await our glorious hope. We've been redeemed. We've been made righteous. We've been accepted. We've been adopted. We've obtained an inheritance. And we've received the Holy Spirit. But too often, we look to ourselves. We fail. Like that person who would ignore all of the signs about the shark activity, we neglect the truth oftentimes. But it's only by the power of God, through the Spirit, the power that God showed in the resurrection, the ascension, the rule and reign of Christ, that we are able to grow in grace, that we're able to become more like Christ. It is the presence of the risen Christ within us that enables us to be transformed. And therefore, we can go out and be effective witnesses for God to the ends of the earth to transform the world through his good news. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father God, we are um, humbled this morning um, to be in your presence. We thank you for your word. Uh, we know that it is living and active. And Lord, it is encouraging to see your display of power in Christ Jesus and what that means for us. We know that we are not lost to fend for ourselves, but that we have your power living in us. That is a wonderful, wonderful truth. Lord, we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.